0: From CPRI and the CPRI Knowledge Hub, this is Research Minutes, a weekly look at new and important research in education. Today, we look at school reopenings and some evidence-based strategies to support students in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic.
1: We know from past research that students who already have the hardest time in school and have lower achievement relative to their peers tend to have a harder time engaging in remote learning.
0: We welcome Elaine Allensworth, professor with the University of Chicago Consortium on School Research and co-author of a new policy brief on student learning loss as a result of extended school closures. Allensworth discusses the potential scope of learning loss and some key planning considerations for schools as they resume instruction this fall.
1: And so that's a place where you really want to make sure you have some kind of formative testing that's going on early in the year so that teachers are um, meeting students where they are.
0: That's right now. On Research Minutes. Hello, and welcome to Research Minutes. I'm Keith U. Miller, managing editor of the CPRI Knowledge Hub. Today we're speaking with Elaine Allensworth, the Lewis Sebring Professor at the University of Chicago Consortium on School Research. Welcome back to the podcast, Elaine.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: So, today we're discussing a new policy brief, which you co-authored with the Annenberg Institute's Nate Schwartz, titled School Practices to Address Student Learning Loss. So, this is part of the new Ed Research for Recovery project, which is being spearheaded by the Annenberg Institute at Brown University, uh, with funding provided from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So, the brief that we're discussing today centers on student learning loss, which historically and primarily has been studied in relation to summer vacations when, you know, students would fall behind academically during prolonged absence from school, but it's taken on a whole new level of import in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. So could you explain why you think this topic is relevant now and what your team hoped to achieve with this policy brief?
1: There were many concerns about the loss of instruction from the disruption in schooling this spring you know, teachers and schools, families had to really scramble. Um, Suddenly, you know, educators had to figure out how they were going to uh, support students um, without having schools open. They suddenly had to prepare for online learning or prepare packets for learning at home. Um, You know, and this is on top of just really basic needs of students, things like making sure that students had lunches and food. Um, And if very quickly, you know, it became apparent that some students were able to engage in online learning and remote learning, others were not. Um, there are concerns about access to the internet and bandwidth and devices, shared space at home, shared devices at home, um, teacher access to the internet, and so just a lot of concerns about how well students could learn from home, their learning environment, expectations of parents, motivation for learning, difficulty in communication. So, you know, just a lot of concerns that students were not going to be able to finish the school year and so then would fall behind. And then especially concerns about exacerbating inequitable opportunities to learn that already existed. We know from past research that students who already have the hardest time in school um, and have a lower achievement relative to their peers tend to have a harder time engaging in remote learning you know, we also know that, you know, there's, you know, huge inequities in terms of the effects, both the health effects and the economic effects on families based on race and ethnicity and income, um, which also affects students' opportunity to engage in learning. Um, and then, you know, those issues are going to continue over the summer. And so, you know, many teachers have reported that they, you know, on behalf of their students were not engaging in learning in the spring. So a lot of concern. And then there was a very um, a much cited brief from the Northwest uh, Education um, Association that suggested really severe learning loss and that caused a lot of anxiety and you know was taken up in the press. Um, and so there was just a lot of concerns about what do we do about uh, learning loss that's happened.
0: I want to go in depth on those inequities you were just discussing in a minute, but if we could start maybe at a more general level, what should districts and schools expect from their students as we begin to resume instruction this fall? How severe might the learning loss be? And do you think it will be concentrated in either certain subject areas or uh, at certain grade levels?
1: So we need to remember, first of all, that learning loss is normal. You know, when it's just part of how our brain works, when we don't use information, we don't use, um, you know, different kinds of skills, we just naturally, you know, our brains let, let some things go. You know, there's a lot of concern that learning loss is related to that students from um, more affluent families have less learning loss over the summer, but there's not good evidence for that. And so, you know, based on recent, more recent evidence, it's just something that happens for all students. So a lot of the concern that has come out has um, really come out of that uh, NWEA that I mentioned in their estimates. So they looked at normal learning loss that happens over the summer and they extrapolated out. But you know, that's taking that's making a lot of assumptions. First of all, assumes that learning loss is going to be the same with more months as it would be that the rate of learning loss would be the same when we don't know that at all. Actually, everything we know about learning loss is that it actually happens mostly right away and then it kind of flattens out. But it also assumes no learning in the spring relative to strong learning in the spring. And the fact is, you know, a lot of students were engaged in learning in the spring. Um, And sometimes there's not a whole lot of instruction that goes on in late spring either with testing and end of the school year. So take this with a grain of salt. um, Like, let's be aware, but let's not uh, overreact. You know, and another thing is, you know, they, they had estimates that students would learn, you know, a half year or, you know, they lose a half year or more. And that sounds like a lot. But in older grades, a half year of learning is actually not that much um, relative to differences that exist among students in the first place. So if students are, you know, were behind by half a year, for most students, they're still going to be well within a normal range for students in their grade. So some people were talking about, oh, maybe we should hold students back. You know, we have them repeat uh, content. For most students, that won't be necessary. They will be at a normal level for their grade when they start, even if they do lose half a year. Um, And that's especially true in the older grades. The students that we most have to be concerned about are the students who are already struggling and who are already had lower achievement relative to their peers, because those are the students who are most likely to fall out of great range. Those are also the students who are most likely to have difficulty with online learning. So um, for the students who are already behind, those are the students that we really need to make sure are not falling even further behind. Another uh, thing to consider is that math is a subject that's that's more responsive to the environment. Um, Students often don't use math over the summer. And so you sometimes see learning losses that are larger in math. But we also see that um, there are larger school effects in math. That's actually an area where you can see bigger gains from more investment in time. So math is a subject that um, if we're thinking about supporting recovery with extra instruction, that's where you can actually see bigger change oftentimes. And then uh, for younger students, you know, a lot of times we see that they have the steepest growth on tests, and that could be the way that the tests are designed, but it's also that you know, students are learning uh, very basic skills at the various younger grades in terms of literacy, in terms of math, and you could actually see big differences from what you expect in those grades. And so that's a place where you really probably want to make sure you have some kind of formative testing that's going on. Early in the year, um, so that teachers are um, meeting students where they are. Um, and that's not necessarily standardized tests, but, you know, assessments that are tied directly into teachers' instructional plans. So if teachers are used to using certain kinds of assessments at the beginning of the school year, they should continue to use those assessments so that teachers know, you know, how to support students that they have in their class so that they can successfully engage.
0: So you mentioned uh, a couple times that one of the primary concerns going forward should be students who have historically been at risk for falling behind their classmates. And you also talk in, in this policy brief about families of color and you know families with lower incomes. We already know that economically and in terms of health outcomes, the COVID-19 pandemic has disproportionately harmed Black and Hispanic families. And uh, economically disadvantaged families, should we expect similarly disproportionate educational impacts for the students from those families?
1: Yeah, um, this is really a big concern. You know we know that so we know, for example, that black and Hispanic families are overrepresented among essential workers, there are more concerns about health risks, um, there are more concerns about you know employment um, for low income families, uh, loss of income. There are a couple of reasons to be concerned. I mean, one, remote learning requires more parental involvement than at-school learning. And so that's going to be difficult for parents that have to work outside of the home. Um, And, you know, the lack of in-person schooling and daycare, it could mean that older siblings need to do more to support younger students, or um, parents are going to have to make choices that have implications um, in terms of of supporting students' learning um, versus uh, family finances unemployment and the stress that it brings can have, you know, it can lead families not to have the resources they really need for students to engage in learning. If you think about, you know, what do you need to really support learning at home? You know, do you have enough devices? Do you have space so that people can have video chats with peers and with teachers? Do you have bandwidth that you need? You know, the more that there are economic constraints, the harder it is going to be to engage in learning. And then family health crises disrupt learning for everyone, right? So if someone is in the family is sick, whether they're, you know, if you need to isolate the person or you're going to the emergency room, that's going to be disruptive for the entire family. And so the more the family is under stress, the harder it is going to be to support learning, um, the harder it is for students to be able to engage. A lot of times people don't think about all the resources that you need just to get to school every day and get work done every day, and so those are still there and present, but now we have you know the technology um, demands on families, which you know take resources and all the stress from this pandemic and the health issues that are associated. So yeah, it just feels like all of this crisis is going to exacerbate differences in uh, opportunities to learn.
0: So this brief contains a number of uh, recommended strategies. To help address some of these these negative impacts going forward, and I want to discuss a few of them here. We actually had the privilege a few weeks ago of speaking with Johns Hopkins University's Robert Slavin, who recommended large scale tutoring as a possible response to learning loss. And uh, it seems that your your team shares that recommendation.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. You know, there are a number of examples of successful programs where students have you know, received one-on-one, two-on-one, very small group um, instruction on top of the regular instruction meant to support uh, students' success in their classes that have shown success, success in terms of students' grades, students' test score gains. We highlight the MATCH program in the brief as one that's been successful in multiple places where they've had two-on-one or 4 in one um different kinds of uh, tutoring. So it's very, very personal. um, And again, tied to supporting students so that they succeed in their classes.
0: As a follow-up, we know that a lot of schools are going to be employing, if they're not moving completely into remote instruction, many, many districts are going to be employing some sort of hybrid model where there will be an aspect of instruction that's conducted online. Can tutoring be offered effectively in a remote setting?
1: You know, I think as with online learning, it's all of these things are more effective um, in person because so much about learning is based in relationships and in emotion and all of those things are harder in line. Um, but a lot of things have moved online. Um, it's better than nothing, You know, better than no interaction and no supports. I mean, my husband's a psychologist and He's doing online therapy now, and I think he might not have thought it would be as effective. But you know, now he's getting used to that. What, one thing I think we're seeing is that um, you know, small group and one-on-one is easier online than large group or you know, like synchronous instruction with a thirty-person class is a lot more difficult than having a small group interaction online. Um, so I would say, yeah, it it probably can be offered effectively in a remote setting. One thing to keep in mind, though, too, is um, you want the tutoring to make it easier for students to succeed in school and easier for them to engage. You want to be giving them support. And so I could also see uh, a strategy being getting some tutoring that's not connected to how students are doing in school. And so I just want to caution against that as well, because that could actually make it more difficult for students. Um, so a lot of times people will invest in, you know, extra tutoring or extra programs that are just extra work for students. Um, and given how hard it is already to engage and get work done, you don't want to make it more burdensome and make it harder for them to succeed in school. So the more that the tutoring can be connected directly to their schoolwork and to helping them succeed, the more likely it is going to be successful for them and that they'll actually learn from that um, and and show higher gains than they normally would.
0: In this brief, you also recommend implementing what you call strong systems to monitor students in areas like attendance and assignment completion and developing strong norms and routines centered on social-emotional learning. Uh, Could you just elaborate on those a little bit?
1: You know, in the end, any kind of supplemental instruction... Um, is going to have a smaller impact than the main body of their instruction. You know, that's going to be the, the um factor in terms of whether students recover, whether they fall behind. The most important thing this coming year is that they have a stable, predictable learning environment where they feel supported and they feel like they can succeed. You know, students in engage when they have really positive mindsets about their work, when they feel like they can succeed, when um, they feel like the work has meaning. And so the most important thing is that they are able to successfully engage in their regular instruction. There are going to be so many things that are undermining that this coming year. You know, it's online learning um, puts a lot more on students. It puts a lot more on parents. It puts a lot on teachers in terms, you know, and teachers are having to teach in a whole new way. We've got all these stresses coming from the economic downturn and the health crisis. And so students could be falling behind for so many reasons this fall. I mean, they could be falling behind because of the loss of instruction in the fall. They could be falling behind because they're having difficulty with the online platform. They could be falling behind because of stress and the family or sickness we can't predict exactly who's going to, you know, who's going to need support and when they're going to need support. And so, it's going to be really, really critical, and more important than thinking about kind of extra supports. It's going to be really critical that we're really monitoring students in terms of their engagement in school, really finding out why, and figuring out how to make sure that students can engage. And some of that might be tutoring, but others, you know, might be problem solving. And that's only going to happen if there are really strong systems in place in the school to really monitor assignment completion and then figure out how to reach out and how to support students. And we see this in the, in the regular school year. Um, we've seen uh, huge improvements in pass rates and graduation rates and college readiness rates in Chicago when schools developed systems that, you know, track students' attendance and their grades, and teachers would get together regularly to figure out who needed support and find out, um, you know, why students were falling behind and help them get back on track. Again, a million reasons students might be struggling. Whatever the reason is, they need support. And the fact that they're not getting work done says that they need support.
0: And uh, my final question would be, are there some strategies that schools should be avoiding as they resume uh, instruction this fall?
1: Yeah. You know, I've heard people talk about grade retention, um, you know, having students repeat grades. There's, you know, quite a sizable uh, body of research that shows um, negative long-term effects from grade retention. Sometimes there can be um, some positive short-term effects um, in terms of having students uh, closer to um, uh, grade level peers in terms of achievement levels, but as students get older, become adolescents, then they you know they can be developmentally at a very different place than their peers, and it also means that students have to stay in school until they're 19 or even 20 if they're retained a couple of times, which makes them likely to drop out. You know, people have talked about compressed content um, again. When you give, if you're going to give students more work and expect them to learn more and at a faster rate, then you also have to give them support. So you could do that as long as you have, you know, this high intensity tutoring, say, or something that's really going to support their learning um, so that they, you know, they're able to do it. Otherwise, you're putting more onto students in terms of expectations when they're under an environment that they're, you know, they're going to be under more stress. And it's really, for most students, there's not a reason to do that because they still will be at grade level. And most students, if they have a stable environment where they feel supported, they will recover um, and where they're able to learn and they're engaged. Um, But what's really critical is that they have that really supportive um, environment that's helping them with whatever is coming their way this year as they go through the school year.
0: As always, Elaine, this is incredible work. Um, I'm sorry we didn't have enough time to go into the the full policy brief today, but um, our listeners can find it for free right now. um, And it's available at annenberg.brown.edu slash recovery, along with a number of other briefs from this Ed Research for Recovery project, which I can't recommend enough for people who have serious questions and are facing some serious challenges as we look toward the fall. Elaine Allensworth, it was a pleasure talking to you again. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's Research Minutes, presented by the CPRE Knowledge Hub. You can find all of our episodes and subscribe to the series at researchminutes.org. To share thoughts on today's episode or to suggest a future topic, you can find us on Twitter at CPRE Hub, at C P R E.